At the beginning of 2009, we looked to the emerging economies for signs of growth, particularly China. Professor Peter Williamson believes China has a lot it can teach the West about catching up. Everybody has been affected because we're now living in a highly interconnected world. So this idea that people had the decoupling of some parts of the world might happen, uh, I think was just dreaming. We, there are knock-on effects uh, everywhere, and we see this all around us. On the other hand, I think we have to uh, be quite clear that China is in a very different position from the UK as it enters this recession. Firstly, it has a high savings rate. It's sitting on around two trillion US dollars of foreign exchange assets. On the other hand, we have uh, in the UK uh, high deficits, uh, both in the government, high borrowing. So. Although everybody is going to be affected, I think we're likely to see a growth rate in China somewhere still around 7% a year versus actually shrinking here and home in the UK. Our Prime Minister Gordon Brown and Chancellor Alistair Darling are now said to be the saviours of not just our banking system but those elsewhere in Europe because of their decisive actions. But when the year began, the economic woes were so intense that we searched our economic past for solutions. Step in Nick Butler, former chairman of the Cambridge Centre for Energy Studies who launched the Keynes Society. The world is facing... Um, bigger problems uh, than it has faced for many years and we need something uh, uh, to question the orthodoxy that has got us to where we are. And I'm an economist. I read Keynes when I was a student here in Cambridge. I've gone back to it recently and I'm uh, reading it in detail and I'm really struck by the sense that he has that you can open up debates. You can look at different ways of doing things. You can put the private and the public sector together. You can use the academic world as well as business. And what I want to do is to open up the debate. I don't have a new orthodoxy to propose. I just think that uh, as things are going, uh, we're in trouble. And I'd like to make a small contribution from a Cambridge base to get us out of that trouble. Well, then one might ask, has Keynes ever really left us? I thought we were pursuing Keynesian economic policies uh, post-Second World War. We did pursue Keynesian economic policies after the Second World War, and they served us very well for many decades. I think we've uh, gone back over the last two decades to a rather simplistic belief that pure markets can solve everything. Uh, we're now seeing that that isn't the case. The market in banking and finance, for instance, uh, because people are greedy and the rules weren't right, has uh, put us into real difficulty. To get out of that, we need to use all the tools at our disposal. And Keynes, uh, he didn't have a, a pure, worked-out, complete theory. I didn't have a polished diamond. Uh, what he believed in was creative pragmatism, and that's what I think we need now. We need parts of the market system, but also we need the use of public power, public spending, and the encouragement of individuals to do the right things. Other experts at Judge Business School urged the politicians to think bigger, not smaller. And while some talked of going back to old-fashioned trade barriers, others spoke against it. We should not ignore the efforts of smaller developing countries to catch up, says Judge Business School's Dr Christos Patelis. The main issue is not really to help. The main issue is to stop being a problem. Because uh, the major developed countries 
uh, are uh, using sometimes uh, protectionist policies, despite the fact that they claim they are usually claim to be claiming to be anti-protectionist, which make the situation worse. It's very ironic in one sense that uh, recent uh, discussion in the, the U.S. Uh, is in line with uh, even more uh, protectionist policies, which, if anything, will make it more difficult for uh, smaller developing countries to catch up. And, for instance, the U.S. is trying to restrict labour movements, isn't it, and, and trade elsewhere. Is that going to penalise in the current economic climate and recession, smaller countries catching up? No, you're absolutely right. One way that uh, through which countries can catch up is actually through uh, emigration, for example. One other uh, way through which uh, countries were um, uh, benefiting in recent years is uh, through, for example, outsourcing, offshoring, and uh, the movement, the relocation of uh, uh, activities of multinational corporations from the developed countries to the developing world. Uh, in recent years, that included even a tendency for research and development and uh, innovation-related activities to be relocated. That was a very good uh, thing to happen. And, of course, all of this fear and uh, protectionist uh, tendencies now make this even worse. So what can be done and catch up? you argue, is good for the global economy as well, you know, that you need a balance between the smaller developing economies and the larger ones? Well, the reason I'm saying that catching up is well for the economy is that the more developed the world is, the more we all benefit. For example, if you think about, take your case, you should be very happy that you have a Sony television. Uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago, people might be very worried because of the emerging uh, power which they could see economic power of Japan. We, since we have realized that we all benefited out of the catching up of Japan and other East Asian economies, there are similar fears with China. I think that it's good. It's a good thing for catching up and development. That creates new markets, uh, new consumers, uh, and this is good for everybody. The hangover of the 2009 recession, our borrowing requirement in terms of debt repayments and future cuts to public sector services is still ahead of us. Even if we emerge out of recession, the UK is going to be in trouble for some time to come. It will need to improve its competitiveness and its ability to innovate. New ideas will help to kick-start economies once more. So what is the best way to encourage innovation? Professor Jadeep Prabhu says CEOs are important. What was most surprising about our study, and in fact I think the strongest contribution of our study, is that it identifies a, a very strong positive impact of CEOs on, on their company's innovative capabilities. Now, this is interesting because, uh, first of all, there isn't a whole lot of systematic research on whether or not CEOs have an impact on their firm's ability to innovate. But the evidence that there is, or the thinking there is out there, tends to actually believe one of two things. Either that CEOs have, are irrelevant for innovation in their companies, or that they're actually bad for innovation in their companies. Uh, and of course, we overturned both those views with our findings. And, and were you surprised by your own findings? Uh, we were. We were extremely surprised for two reasons. As I said, one uh, reason being that most people tend to believe that CEOs are bad for innovation, and you quoted mm -hmm. the example of uh, one of them, uh, Ken Olson, 
who was the CEO of Digital Equipment Corporation, or DEC, a very successful computer company, until the 80s, that is. And as late as 1977, Ken Olson said, uh, there's no reason for anyone to have a PC in their homes. Um, so clearly someone who was not stupid, a very bright person, uh, has a PhD, had a PhD from MIT and so on, and had been capable of innovation until then. It's just that for some reason at that point he was incapable of seeing this huge future opportunity and actually resisted it and forbade his employees from actually using that term in his organization. But then you also had people like Andy Grove at Intel and Steve Jobs at Apple, who are widely acknowledged in, in the sector as being good innovators Indeed. as chiefs. Indeed. So we do have um, anecdotal evidence. We have uh, people who are held up by the press to be uh, good examples of this influence that CEOs can have on their companies in terms of innovation. Andy Grove being a particular example, the CEO of Intel, who's written a book called uh, Only the Paranoid Survive, uh, talking about the importance of companies, uh, in, uh, the importance of being paranoid in fact, thinking about how they might be made obsolete by new uh, technologies, new companies that exploit those technologies, or shifts in consumer habits. So there's Andy Grove, of course, and then everybody associates Steve Jobs uh, and Apple with innovation, and there's no doubt that every time Steve Jobs has been at the helm of Apple, they've come up with some new blockbuster product. Back to those job losses. The year began with the International Labour Organization forecasting a rise in unemployment by 20 million worldwide by the end of 2009. Creative thinkers at Judge Business School asked if a strategy of cutting wages was better than cutting jobs. Dr Paul Kuterman. The first and foremost issue that firms face when their revenues are not rising anymore, in fact they're falling and the profits are falling too, is that they need to cut costs. And one of the key costs is always going to be employment-related costs. Now there are two choices. If you're completely in a bind and you're in extremely dire circumstances, the only thing you can really do is to declare bankruptcy if you cannot fulfill your contractual obligations, service your debt. The alternative is laying off people to the extent that you can. And the third way, if you like, is to cut wages, to reduce the pressure of employment-related costs, not by cutting employment, but by cutting wages. And would that be a good thing for a company to do? Surely if they cut wages, then it's going to demotivate the best in the company. Yes, I mean, certainly uh, there is that argument. Uh, cutting wages is certainly not ipso facto a good thing. But if you are faced with the prospect that the alternative is large-scale layoffs, that can be even more demotivating than wage cuts. But if jobs have to go, what's the best way for managers to make redundancies less traumatic? Dr Philip Stiles. I think in the current environment, people tend to expect that there might be redundancies in the air. I think employers, on the whole, tend to manage these things quite well. Um, in the companies we've seen, we've seen redundancies handled with some fairness and with good explanation. In terms of tips in which companies can follow, um, three things seem to stand out. One is that the employees are given an opportunity to give their voice. 
That is, they're allowed to speak and to allow to have, allow to, um, to have their say in these very important issues that are affecting them. And the second issue is about explanation. Just what is the explanation that, are, that is given to employees um, about why the redundancy is necessary? And the third thing really is about dignity. Are the employees handled uh, with dignity and respect when the, the redundancy issue is um, discussed? One of, the, one of the things which is not to be recommended and which we see sometimes in companies is when um, employers decide to make a cut across the board um, with, with, say, a 10% cut across all the organisation or a 20% cut across all the organisation, which never strikes employees as being very fair or very targeted or having a very good explanation. So why did the experts not see the recession coming? Risk management modelling came under scrutiny in the financial sector. Professor Stefan Scholtes argued that contrary to popular belief, the risk management models in use today are not too simple. They are, in fact, too complex. Risk management, to begin with, is, uh, is first and foremost a way to help managers understand what the range of outcomes might be that follow on from, from their decisions, be it making a loan or investing in China or any other uh, decisions that people make. So w managers often have a clearly perceived view of how the future might unfold. And it's the risk manager's task to open up their eyes for other possible futures, in a way. So would you say, for instance, in the current recession, an economic client, people in banking got the risk management uh, modelling systems wrong? Surely there must be a right and a wrong way to go about things. I would definitely say that, the, that in the banking sector, the risk management systems are not functioning very well. I think that's very clear for everyone. Um, the, the way risk management has evolved in, in, uh, in the banking industry and also in, in many other industries is that it has almost become a branch of engineering. Um, risk managers seem to be producing very, very complicated models that are essentially black boxes that try to correlate certain time series and certain other things that we know from, hist from historical data. And then the outcomes, outcomes of these models are, are given to the managers essentially in a this-is-the-right-answer type way. Um, I don't think that's a particularly good way of doing risk management. There wasn't just scrutiny of bankers' bonuses and salaries. There was outrage that a culture of personal greed in the financial sector seemed to have led our economy to the brink. Dr Jonathan Trevor has his own views on good governance and executive pay. We need to define what strategic pay means, but, but there's a really important question that I think all organisations should ask themselves in relation to pay, pay being, of course, a, a, a very important aspect of employment and a, a, a really important aspect of, of indeed, organisational uh, governance, um, and that is, we know what you say you do, but do you do what you say? OK, so what should people do, or what should they say that they do? Well, um, there's a whole lot of theory that, um, that contends that pay 
um, is actually a strategic tool uh, that organisations can use in order to leverage behaviours that in turn benefit uh, uh, the organisation in terms of performance. Um, So actually it's a strategic management tool. Now you have to understand pay wasn't always this. Pay uh, was uh, in the past traditionally just the necessary cost of hiring labour. It was a cost of doing business. Uh, You paid your money to a foreman or whomever, distributed the pay in the form of uh, weekly earnings uh, to a work group or a gang, uh, if you will, um, on the production line. And in effect, they came in, they did a preset uh, amount of work. Pay didn't vary. It was just one lump sum um, on a weekly, monthly or yearly basis. Or coercion or it was through inducement. Uh, We are moving more towards the inducement model, which is to say the carrot and not the stick. And the carrot are incentives. And that's not an executive compensation or an executive pay issue that is for you me that is for the sales guy who works in the local garage or it is for a research and design person working for say smith klein or unilever or whomever um, this is now pervasive practice see some incentives for all employees and not just the few at the top but wouldn't people still point their finger and say well the word incentive applies to the top guys it doesn't apply to us the workers but you've rightly pointed out the salary bill is billions of pounds for the majority of the workforce. Why do you think people think there is an imbalance in the economy today in terms of pay? Um, I think because historically we are without precedent when it comes to executive pay and the levels that are are currently being awarded to to executives. And uh, uh, we we have pushed through any sort of ceiling that we knew of before that we were comfortable with. Um, And we do see that uh, executive pay is outstripping um, by a factor sometimes, well, gosh, many, many percentage points, hundreds of percentage points um, in comparison to average rises or increments of, of all employee pay. Another revolution was going on too, making the world less certain than it has been in the past. Today's ICT revolution is changing the way corporations, governments and not-for-profits are organised. Professor Arnold de Meyer. We have a particular view on what leadership is all about and we call it collaborative leadership. Um, Perhaps that's a little bit in the genes of the Cambridge University because, as you know, the university is actually not one single institution but consists of the university itself but also the 31 colleges and a lot of other institutions. And there are probably more than 50 independent autonomous uh, organizations that together somehow form what we, from the outside, will call the University of Cambridge. Giving leadership in such a complicated, complex Uh, organizational structure requires actually to work with peers, to influence uh, peers, to, the word that I've used a few times uh, in the past, also to seduce people into doing things, to convince them, uh, to influence, as I said already before. Um, And that's the type of leadership that we try to um, share with our students here. Uh, And I believe actually that that is a type of leadership that the world will need much more in the future. Uh, I have many reasons why that is, but um, I think to just give four or five. First of all, we see that the world is internationalizing enormously, and not in a way where one country is given leadership and the rest is dancing to the tunes of that country, but if you see what's going on in the current economic environment and where you see that, yes, President Obama wants to give leadership to the world, but others are resisting that, you understand very quickly that on an international scale, people work in networks, in networks that 
of peers, of people that, as I said before, try to influence each other, try to convince each other of their proper ideas. And I think what we see um, in the present times, uh, enrolling in, at, at the political level and at the uh, macro level, is the same for organizations today. That is, many of our uh, organizations, even small organizations, become very international. But they don't have this pyramidical structure anymore, whereby the person at the top tells everybody else in the organization what to do, but you see that these international organizations are often networks of nodes, with a strong node maybe here in the UK, and one in India, and one in China, and perhaps in Brazil, and where, if you want to make the organization move, where you have these nodes, uh, where you have them to have, have them to work together with each other uh, in order to achieve results. Mm -hmm.